Okay. Um, we're going to look today at, um, at two different, really two different models or two different uh, forms of teshuva. Um, and neither, neither of them, I believe, is what it looks like on the surface. Uh, and yet, when you, on the surface, when you look at both of them, they share striking similarities. We talk about Yehuda and David, um, separated by uh, about 14 generations, father to son, direct line. Um, we speak about charismatic individuals. We speak about an incident in which there is some form of sexual impropriety. And somehow or another in the story, um, a woman named Tamar features prominently. Uh, we speak about a cover-up. And the cover-up in which the perpetrator, this charismatic perpetrator, is perfectly willing to let innocent people die. And when they're confronted by what they've done, strikingly, they both stop the presses and take full responsibility for their actions. So when you take a look at, at just that type, um, that framework of two stories, these two stories on the surface look very similar. And um, I could easily see somebody um, giving the same lecture um, and describing how we see um, how the model of tshuva that, uh, that, that Yehuda sort of, in, sort of blazed into his family was picked up by one of his descendants many, many generations later. Easy. But I think when we take a, a closer look, we'll discover that neither of those stories really fit that framework really well. And that each one of them has enough of a nuance to it that... Um, that they become profoundly meaningful. Okay, let's start. Let's review quickly the story of Yehuda. Yehuda, the way the Torah describes it, leaves his family. This is in Breshit, uh, chapter 38. Lamed Chet. Yehuda leaves his family. Vayered Yehuda me'etechav and marries a Canaanite wo- makes a friend, um, and marries a Canaanite woman. We don't know her name. We never find out her name. This Canaanite woman bears Yehuda three sons. She dies. Yehuda goes and uh, marries off his eldest son to, um, to another apparently Canaanite woman, um, his eldest son, heir. And for some strange reason, we don't know exactly, but he did something that was wrong in God's eyes and, uh, and God strikes him down. The second son is supposed to marry Tamar in some form of yibum, some form of leveret marriage. He also does something that is displeasing to God and God strikes him down too. And then comes time for the third son and Yehuda says, I made the mistake twice, I'm not repeating the mistake again. And Yehuda says, Tamar, you wait. You wait until my youngest son, Shelah, is ready to get married. He clearly has no intention of ever marrying youngest son, Shelah, to Tamar. And she waits, and she waits, until one day it becomes clear to her that Yehuda is never going to marry, never going to let her marry the youngest son. 
And she decides to set an ambush for Yehuda. Yehuda is on his way to a sheep shearing festival. Great celebration in, uh, in, the, in the hills of, uh, of, of the Judean mountains. Um, and uh, on the way, Yehuda is sort of uh, pining for some kind of companionship. His wife is gone. Eldest two sons are gone. And he meets a woman that he thinks is a prostitute. She dresses up. She has her face, her face covered over. And uh, they agree on a price, and he sleeps with her. Um, and then it turns out that uh, he doesn't have cash. So he promises to send something, and she doesn't want to rely only on the promise. So he leaves his credit card. Okay? He's a staff. Um, some kind of a garment. Okay? And um, signet ring and some kind of a staff. Yudah goes home sends one of his trusted friends to, uh, with a sheep to pay off this woman and redeem his, uh, his stuff and uh, comes to the place, wants to pay her off and there's no prostitute here. Nobody had ever heard of a prostitute in, in, in that area. Guy comes back and he says, I'm sorry, I tried, I tried paying her and you does distraught. But we have an obligation to pay. How can I not pay my obligations? Okay, whatever it is, he can't pay. Little time passes, and it uh, turns out that Tamar had gotten pregnant from her encounter with Yehuda. Word gets back to Yehuda, and he says, Oh, she cheated on me. She was supposed to wait. And here's a really convenient opportunity to get her out of his life once and for all. Take her out and burn her at the stake. Okay. The procession is about to go out there and she sends a message. Like many of the biblical heroines, her message is sent clandestinely. She doesn't want to embarrass Yehuda in a public kind of a way. She sends a clandestine message to Yehuda and she returns his stuff. She returns his patilim, his special garments, his signet ring, his staff. She said, do you recognize these? Hakerna. Do you recognize them? The man who owns these, he's the, he's the father of these children. Now, Yehuda had a very easy choice right then. He could easily have ignored the letter. said, oh, great, somebody found my credit card. Right? And just gone on his life. Instead, Yehuda marches out there and says, stop the procession. I'm the guilty party. Tamar gives birth to two children. The second of those, uh, those children is named Peretz. Peretz is the great, 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 great grandfather of David HaMelech, as told at the end of Megillat Rut. Okay, that's the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Okay, let's put this story a little bit into context, because it's a funny story, and the context is a funny context. This story, let's figure out how long this story takes. Yehuda has to get married. He's got to have three children. And the youngest of those children has to be of marriageable age. Let's assume for a minute that marriageable age was about 13. Let's just assume. So he had to have gotten married. And he's got his three children. Okay? So that's one year, two years, three years after marriage, his third child is born. Thirteen years later... So this story is a minimum of, takes a minimum of 16 years 
oh no, it takes another year because Tamar has to become pregnant and give birth. Um, so that we're talking about a minimum of 17 years for this story to take place. Okay? Now here's the interesting thing. This story is described to us in the Chumash immediately after the sale of Yosef. From the time of the sale of Yosef until the time that Yaakov and his clan go down to Mitzrayim is 22 years. Don't trust me, you can do the math, you can figure it out yourself. All you need is a chumash and flip through the pages. It's 22 years. Okay? When Yaakov and his clan go down to Mitzrayim, Yehuda is a grandfather, meaning Peretz has children. Peretz, the child that was born at a minimum 17 years after Yehuda leaves his clan, he has children himself. Okay, so here's the problem. The chronology is problematic. The story is told to us immediately after the sale of Yosef. And yet, the story could not have taken place after the sale of Yosef. Let's just do this math really, really. Yeah. That's okay. He, he's allowed. He allowed. It happens in the chronology that it is, but it's just the only... I mean, he makes a really very, very crystal clear case for it happening. Syriatim, exactly as it was, the years passed well, everything works out fine. It, 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 it works out fine, except for the pasuk that describes and counts 70 descendants, or 69 descendants of Yaakov and Paris' children are included in those 69. Right. Right. I, I'm not working with Kasuto's okay. timeline. Okay. Um, so, do, do we have sort of a sense of, of, of the problem over here? Yosef is sold. All right. And then we have a maximum of 22 years from the sale of Yosef until the descent into Egypt. Okay. During those 22 years, Yehuda has to marry. Have three children. Um, and have grandchildren. From the, and the grandchildren come from the youngest of, of those children. The, the, the chronology here is problematic. Okay. Uh, by the way, um, as a side point, everything I say here can stand without the chronology as a problem. Right? Everything is... The chronology here adds, but, but it, it, is not, uh, it, it is not an essential pillar. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a look at, this, at the story of, um, of Yehudan and Tamar a little bit more 
carefully in the, um, in the text itself and then work our way back and see what might be. Okay. What might be a link or a connection, a thematic connection between the story of the sale of Yosef and, um, and Yehuda's, the, the, the whole story of Yehuda and how is it, right, that these stories sort of work together? The story of Yehuda and the story of Yosef. That will be a, 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 um, an additional piece, but trying to understand what's happening over here. Okay, I'm reading now chapter 38, um, the beginning of, of the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Okay, the language of Vayered Yehuda me'etechav, Yehuda descended from his brothers, clearly indicates that Yehuda is doing, is doing something over here to leave the family. Vayered Yehuda me'etechav, he is leaving his brothers. He's leaving the clan. Yehuda is not the first of the brothers, by the way, to do something as an act of rebellion in this clan. We've already heard this story of, of Reuven, Reuven who moves his father's bed or sleeps with Bilha, right? whichever version you want to take it, but that's clearly an act of rebellion against the father's authority. We've already heard the story of Shimon and Levi. The story of Shimon and Levi is as much a rebellion against the father's authority as it is a violent act against the people of Shechem as it is a redemption of their, um, of their sister Dina. Because Yaakov plans to do things one way and they go and they take it in a whole different direction. So Reuven is rebelling against his father's authority. Shimon and Levi are rebelling against their father's authority. Yehuda is next in line. Vayered Yehuda me'etechav Yehuda has left the clan. Not only has he left the clan, he's actually planning to leave the clan forever and to start his own clan. Reuven was interested in, in taking power from Yaakov over their clan. Shimon and Levi were interested in taking power from Yaakov over their clan. How do I know that Yehuda is interested in starting his own clan? The story tells it to me, essentially. He marries a Canaanite woman. In Sefer Breshit, when you marry a Canaanite woman, that means you are out. Esav marries Canaanite women. Rivka turns to Yaakov and says, if, if Yaakov marries a Canaanite woman, I have no future. I'd rather be dead. Esav marries a Canaanite woman, and by morat ruach they created a bitterness of spirit for for Rivka and and for Yitzchak. When Abraham is looking for a wife for Yitzchak, and he calls in his trusted servant, who many people assume is Eliezer. Right, but he calls in his trusted servant and he says, don't marry him to a Canaanite woman. In Sefer Breshit, marrying a Canaanite woman means you're out of the fold. Finished. Uh, Yehuda goes and marries a Canaanite woman. He has three children from this Canaanite woman. He's interested in starting his own clan. He leaves by Yered Yehuda me'etachav. He separates himself from the rest of his family. Goes and marries a Canaanite woman. He's got a whole new picture. He's got Canaanite friends. He goes to parties with them. He's attending the sheep sharing festival with his Canaanite friends. That's the story 
The, the essential story of Yehuda and Tamar starts as Yehuda leaving the fold. Okay. This now becomes a little bit more complicated because at what point does Yehuda return to the fold? And, and this is where the chronology is going to be really interesting. Did Yehuda leave the fold after the sale of Yosef? Very difficult. Did he leave the fold before the sale of Yosef? But Yehuda plays a really important role in the sale of Yosef. And how do we work out when Yehuda returns and the role that Yehuda plays in the sale of Yosef? Yehuda is the one who said, don't kill him. There's certainly no benefit to that. Let's sell him instead. Now that's the same Yehuda that we hear in our story over here. And by the way, there's something interesting. Because Yehuda's actions in both stories are both about money. How much can we make from the sale of Yosef on the one hand? And I need to pay Tamar properly. I need to pay this, this prostitute that, uh, that, uh, that I slept with. Okay, so we already have some thematic connections between the two stories. We're going to have to, to have to try to figure that out a little bit more because what we're going to look at is who this Yehuda is and what, um, what's the nature of the sin that Yehuda commits and what's the nature of the tshuva that Yehuda engages in. And it could very well be that the story of the sale of Yosef may very well play a role in that. Okay, uh, let's jump deeper into... Uh, into our story. There's a very strange line, by the way, um, in verse 5. I don't know what to make of this um, other than what the words hint at. Verse 5 in, in chapter 38 says, bain, She bore him, this is the third child, she bore him a child, a son, Vatikra et Shemo Shela. She called him Shela. Vehaya Vichziv Belidta Oto. He was in a place called Kiziv when Shela was born. That's a piece of trivial information that is never brought back to us. We don't know what the significance of that is, other than the fact that the root Kuf Zayin Beit means de- deception. That somehow or another Yehuda is already, or is all, Yehuda is in a place of deception. Okay? That's the only thing I can make of this. So we have the story, and the opening of the story basically says Yehuda is trying to leave his clan, start his own clan, rejecting the history of his father and of his ancestors, and Yehuda is somehow or another involved in some form of deception. Okay. Now, what happens? The first son dies, the second son dies, and Yehuda's deception continues. He deceives Tamar. He misleads her to think that she's eventually going to be allowed to marry Shelah. He has no intention of ever allowing her to marry Shelah. but truth is, that's going to pose sort of a problem for Yehuda, because um, if he's never going to allow her to marry Shelah, then it, it's clear that people know who Yehuda is. He's, he's an important figure. Um, Tamar, everybody knows 
we're not talking about large, large communities, large cities over here, but it's very clear. You word get back to you, Dad, that Tamar is, uh, is fooling around and she's pregnant. Uh, so there's no way that Yehuda is going to be able to marry Sheila off to anyone else unless he marries her off to Tamar. But if he's not going to allow, her to mar- to, to mar- allow Sheila to marry Tamar, then effectively he's sentencing, she- he's sentencing Sheila to never marrying. So here's an interesting kind of scenario. Yehuda just lost two sons, and he's going to prevent his third son from bearing him any more, any more offspring. So here you have the guy who's looking to start his own clan, and his pa- plan is about to fail miserably. Why? Because he refuses to stand up to his own responsibilities to Tamar and his responsibilities to his own son. That's the scenario that's presented to us. Yehuda is the one who, who avoids responsibility. Okay? He tries starting his own clan, but the hallmark of that clan is the avoidance of that responsibility. Truth is, you even begin to see that with Yehuda's own children. The second son is named Onan. Right? Onan does something that's displeasing to God. What is it that he does? He decides to spill his seed on the ground rather than impregnate his wife Tamar. Why? Because the child won't be called after him. The child will be called after his brother. That's what Yibum essentially is. Yibum is lahakim shem hamet. It's to uphold the name of the dead one. So here you have Onan. Onan, and Onan doesn't want to fulfill his family responsibility either. He's prepared not to have his own children just so that they shouldn't be called on the name of his brother. So the avoidance of responsibility at great personal cost is something that Yehuda has taught his children well. And of course we have Shelah who is the invisible figure in this entire story and you know, once Tamara comes into the story, Shelah basically disappears into the background. We never hear from him. We never hear about him again. Interestingly enough, when um, he, he does appear in in the um, um, in the various genealogies later on in Chumash in, in in the Yehuda family, but of no significance. Mishpachat Hashelani. But we we know nothing about the family of Shelah. In the story of Yehuda, in the grand story of Yehuda, he plays absolutely no role. Okay. Um, and now we have an ironic kind of a twist. Because here you have Yehuda, and the hallmark of the clan that he's, that he's setting up over here, the hallmark is, of his family, is avoidance of responsibility, except when it comes to financial matters. Financial matters he is very, very concerned about. So he wants to make sure that he's going to get a fair price for Yosef. He wants to make sure that Tamara is going to be paid off. Truth is, later on in the story, much later on in the story, when the brothers actually do go down to Yosef, and they, after the first trip down to Yosef, and Shimon is left behind, and they come back, and they discover that, they, that their money is back in their pouches. Right? What are they worried about? They're worried that they're going to be accused of being thieves. They're worried about their financial responsibilities. Right? That's that's the legacy of Yehuda in this story of Yosef. That's the legacy of Yehuda in this story as well. They are interested in financial responsibilities, nothing more than that. And truth is, 
Yehuda's avoidance of, of personal responsibility, which he's taught his children so well, um, apparently he's taught Yaakov pretty well, too. Let's jump ahead to that story later on. Yaakov calls his sons together. By this point, Yehuda is somehow or another back in the clan. Twelve sons go down. Sorry, eleven sons go down. Ten come back. Right? Shimon is left behind. Um, and Yaakov refuses to send them back. Or refuses to send, to send Binyamin with them. Now, there's a famine in the land. And this is apparently is a pretty significant famine to the extent that there's no food. And they've eaten up all their food. And Yaakov says, okay, time to go back. And they say, Dad, we can't. And he says, no, you're not taking Binyamin. I've already lost two. I don't want to lose a third. That sounds familiar. That's exactly what Yehuda said. But look at what Yaakov is doing over here. He's prepared to sacrifice his whole family in order to save Binyamin. That means Yaakov is also prepared to sacrifice his entire future and everything he's built and his whole clan because he refuses to part with Binyamin. Yaakov learned well from his son Yehuda. The same theme keeps keeps playing us through. So we see Yehuda over here, and then the character of Yehuda is the one who avoids responsibility, and because Yehuda is a charismatic figure and a powerful figure, he influences everybody around him. So when he tells the brothers, let's sell him, the brothers sell him. When, he go, when um, his son learns from him indirectly, and his son also refuses to follow his responsibility, and Yaakov, his father, learns from him as, as well. The... The, the, the image that we get by the time we finish looking at the various pieces of this story, right, starting from chapter 37, which, which is, we don't know exactly when it happened, before this story, in the middle of this story, we don't know exactly when it happened, but from chapter 37 all the way through the story of Yaakov refusing to send Binyamin, the legacy of Yehuda is a legacy of avoidance of responsibility, except for financial matters. I don't, want to, I don't want anybody to say anything bad about me. And that, by the way, interestingly, that's something that Yehuda learned from Yaakov. Yaakov spent 22 years in the house of Lavan, looking over his shoulder, afraid that somebody would accuse him of being deceptive afraid that somebody would accuse him of being a thief. So when, ya- so when Lavan switches his salary to something else, Yaakov says, yes, master. And when Lavan switches it again, he says, yes, master. Over and over and over again. Ten times, Yaakov says, each time so that Yaakov should not be accused of doing something that was improper. And we understand why Yaakov is walking around with that monkey on his shoulder, because he stole Esau's bracha. And everybody knows that. And Yaakov knows that everybody knows that. And every time he walks down the street, he sees all these eyes following him. There goes the thief. There goes the thief. So at the first time we hear Yaakov, we, we hear this, by the way, is when Yaakov finally sneaks away from love out of the middle of the night, like a thief. Yeah. Incredible language. 
The Chumash describes, Vatignov Rachel et Hatrafim, Vayignov Yaakov et Lev Lavan. Two psukim right after each other. Yaakov stole Lavan's heart. For 22 years, he didn't steal anything. Yaakov was really honest. It was Lavan who was the thief. But leaving Lavan's house, Yaakov is the thief. He runs away in the darkness of night. So Lavan comes chasing after him. Uh, the great irony in that story is that in that story, somebody in Yaakov's house did, household did steal from Lavan. Yaakov doesn't know that. Yaakov protests his innocence, and for the first time we hear the burden that Yaakov has been carrying around on his shoulders for 22 years. How dare you accuse me of stealing after everything you've done to me all these years? Yaakov finally stands up for himself after all that time. Yehuda is, uh, is maybe a 10-year-old boy standing next to his father when he hears that speech. Maybe not even 10 years old. No, not even a 5-year-old boy, 6-year-old boy. Seven. When, he, when he hears his father give that speech, it, it impressed itself upon him so that Yehuda learned something from his father about, uh, about financial responsibility. And you don't want anybody to ever accuse you of being a thief. But responsibility in any other sphere of life. Right? Yehuda is completely abandoned. And that's the Yehuda that we are faced with in the story until Tamar steps in. When Tamar steps in, the turnaround in Yehuda is dramatic and instantaneous. Sadka, Mimeni. She is more righteous than me. Although Rashi wants to read it with a beautiful Midrashic reading. Sadka, she is righteous. Mimeni, the child is mine. Right? Uh, either way you read it, it has the same, um, the, the, the same kind of power. Yehuda had an easy out. But here, the greatness of Yehuda is a man whose hallmark was avoidance of responsibility decides to take responsibility. He decides to stand up and to say, no, I have to do the right thing. And Tamar sort of pushed him into that. The same kind of role, by the way, that Rachel pushes Yaakov into in that other story I told you about. By stealing the trafim, she actually forced Yaakov to confront Lavan. Tamar, working behind the scenes, forces Yehuda to confront his own responsibility. And here's an, an, an extraordinary pun. One of the words, and the Midrash picks up on this, one of the words that appears in the deception stories, starting from the time that Yaakov, um, that Yaakov deceives Yitzchak and moving on through the time that the brothers sell Yosef, right? one of the phrases is hakerna. Do you recognize? Right? When Lavan comes, when, when, when Yaakov, sorry, comes into Yitzchak, Velohikiro, he didn't recognize him um, because his hands were, were all hairy. Um, when the brothers uh, sell Yosef and they take his bloodied cloak and they bring it, and they bring it to, uh, to Yaakov, they say, Hakerna, do you recognize this? I can, on all innocence, do you recognize this? Right? And that, that phrase keeps coming back all over again. Here it's interesting because up until now, hakerna is used as one of an innocent means of deception. And here, Tamar turns the hakerna of Sefer Breshit over on its head. Do you recognize this? Tamar is not interested in deceiving Yehuda. And 
when Yehuda goes and actually does acknowledge it, then she transforms the Haker Nav Sefer Breshit from a tool of deception into a tool of responsibility. Later on, the same thing is going to happen with Yosef. Okay, because Yosef also, Velohikiruhu, they did not recognize him. By Akher Yosef et Tachav, he recognizes them. Vayitnaker alehem, an incredible pun on, on, on that word. He turned himself into a nochri, the opposite of, of a hakir, and into a foreigner. Right, so the same, we have parallel hakers going on in the Yehuda story and the Yosef story. And um, in this case, as a result of Tamar's haker, um, Yehuda begins a process of transformation. Now, the process of transformation that takes place in Yehuda has immediate effects on him, but it also has effects on everybody around him. Okay? Um, first of all, in the story itself, the story in our chapter over here, chapter 38, starts with Yehuda. He is center stage. Yehuda and his sons, they're center stage. He marries, he's got three sons. They die, right? So they're, they're, at, they, they're out of the picture. He's center stage. Tamar becomes center stage until, until Yehuda takes responsibility. And once Yehuda takes responsibility, Tamar once again fades into the background. The narrator of this story really did an incredible thing over here and, and sort of thrusts Yehuda right back in there. And uh, Yehuda becomes center, um, center of this story. As a result of Yehuda's accepting responsibility, he has two children born to him, perhaps to replace the two children that he lost. He had two children he lost because of lack of responsibility. Now that he takes responsibility, he has two more children. Leadership emerges from one of those two children. You know, let, let, let's take questions at the end so we can just keep our eyes on the clock. Okay? Peretz, um, the son, I mean, there's a funny piece there at the end as well, but we're not going to go into that. Peretz, um, the, the, um, the elder of the two children, in a funny kind of birth sequence, is the one who eventually is the ancestor of Nachshon ben Aminadav and all the leadership of, of Shevet Yehuda, all the way through David and, uh, and till, uh, till the end of the Davidic dynasty. Okay, that's the change that takes place in Yehuda. But um, there are other changes that take place in Yehuda as well. For example, later on, when it comes, let's jump now to that other scene. The other scene is um, the brothers come to Yaakov and they say, look, we we need food. And Yaakov says, no, I'm not going to send you. And what does Yehuda do? Yeah, Yehuda, first of all, here is Reuven. Reuven says, look, if I don't bring him back, he can kill my two kids. Clearly spoken like somebody who's never lost a child. Okay? Yaakov looks at Reuven, and he doesn't say it, but, you know, in, in his own head, he says, you're an idiot. <laughs> but Yehuda steps forward, and Yehuda does something that knocks Yaakov off his feet. Yehuda says, I take personal responsibility. <laughs> Yaakov has never heard those words spoken from the son before. This is the son whose signet ring said, no responsibility. 
And this is the son who now steps forward and says, I take personal responsibility if I don't bring him back. I will be a sinner to you all of my days. Wow. It moves Yaakov. And Yaakov says, okay. Yaakov now moves into the sequence there. And and look at the story there. Yaakov, the picture of Yaakov up until there is the picture of the old leader of the clan withered and just giving up. All he wants is, when he dies, his youngest his youngest child, his beloved child, the child of his beloved Rachel, to be there next to him. Yehuda, when he stands up and does that, Yaakov is transformed. Because all of a sudden, this passive, inactive man gets up there and says, okay, let's organize. We need to get some of this and some of this and some of this. You go down there, you tell the man, Yaakov is all of a sudden the leader of his clan again. Instead of, instead of being this passive one, waiting for everybody to die, Yaakov is transformed by, the, by, by Yehuda himself and sends them off. It's the same story when Yehuda tells it to Yosef that brings a breakdown in Yosef. This is, this is what transforms Yosef himself because what does Yehuda tell him? He tells him the whole story all the way back when but then he says, you know, I, I took personal responsibility for Binyamin. Yosef knows his brother Yehuda. He's never heard those words come out of his mouth. You took what? You took personal responsibility? And at that point, Yosef understands that this is not the same brother who sold him. It's not the same brother who said, what profit are we going to get out of this? This is the brother who decides we're going to take responsibility. And it's not the first time, in the be- earlier in that story, Yehuda is the one who steps forward and says, okay, you know what? I'll stay here instead of Binyamin. You send him and I'm going to stay here. You know, uh, Yosef sees this. Right? It, it, it transforms Yosef too. So Yehuda's transformation, his own personal transformation to responsibility, actually transforms everyone around him. Now, if we wanted to do a really interesting exercise, and I don't know that we have time for this, um, it would be really interesting to see at what point in this in this scenario, in chapter 38, at what point in here did the various parts of the Yosef story happen? So it makes absolutely no sense to say that the transformed Yehuda, right? The end of chapter 38, Yehuda is a transformed man. The transformed Yehuda somehow or another would have been involved in a different kind of way earlier on in the Yosef story. So somehow or another, the story of the selling of Yosef and the story of Yehuda happened interchangeably. So that the story of the selling of Yosef happens, to, happens when Yehuda is in, in a phase of, of the absence of responsibility, a phase of um, how much is it going to cost me, and, and financial respons- the only responsibility is financial responsibility. The end of the story when Yehuda actually returns to the clan and returns to the clan as a changed person, happens clearly after Tamar confronts him. So the story of Yehuda um, and Tamar started 
earlier, ended later, and it would be a re- an interesting exercise that I'm watching the clock over here that, um, t- to see how, how those things all sort, of, uh, all sort of work their way through. Um, what I'd like to do is um, I'd like to take maybe five minutes to take a look at, um, at the epilogue to this story. The epilogue to this story actually takes place in Parashad Vayechi. Those of you who have Chumashim in front of you, um, I, I know Dalia made some copies, but I don't think they made it in here. Um, oh, thank you. Um, on Yaakov's deathbed, Yaakov calls in his sons and speaks to them. Whether you want to say, whether you want to call what he says brachot and I thank you. So if 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 you have a chumash in front of you, you don't need these sheets. This is in chapter forty-nine of Sefer Brishit, starting with verse eight. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to read or study for a few minutes the bracha that Yaakov gives to Yehuda in light of this story. Yehuda, ata yoducha achecha. It's an incredible pun on, on the name Yehuda. And Yaakov essentially changes the name changes the meaning of Yehuda's name. When Leah calls him Yehuda from the word thanks. Right? That's what Leah says when Yehuda is born. Right? Yehuda from the, from, the, from the meaning of thanks. But um, Yaakov apparently transforms the, name, the meaning of Yehuda's name from thanks to I acknowledge. Acknowledgement is different from thanks. Like I admit I finally recognize who you are. Yehuda, atayaducha achecha. You, your brothers, acknowledge. Yadcha ba'oref oivecha. Your hand on the neck, or the nape of the neck of your enemies. Yishtachavulcha b'nei avicha. Your, uh, your, father's, um, your father's children, your father's sons bow down to you. Now, Gur Aryeh Yehuda. Yehuda is a fierceful lion cub. Miteref Bini Alita. Now, there are a number of different ways of reading this, but I'm going to suggest one of a number of different readings. The word teref. Tarof Toraf Yosef. When the brothers bring the cloak to Yaakov, Yaakov draws the conclusion that Yosef, his son, was tarof toraf, right, was torn apart, miteref, from the teref, bini alita. Okay, you rose up as a result, or you rose up from the depths that you had reached in the sale of Yosef. Miteref bini alita. Kara ravatz ka'aryeyu chlavi miyikimenu. When you crouch like a lion, nobody can raise you up. Essentially, acknowledging that Yehuda is a leader. Nobody can move Yehuda. Yehuda is the one who moves others. 
Nobody can move Yehuda except Yehuda himself. Yafeh. Yafeh. Vayered Yehuda, and now he rises up. Truth is, the only one who can move Yehuda is Yehuda himself. And we know, something that Yaakov may not know, that Tamar was able to make him rise. Tamar is the one who brought Yehuda to rise up from that Vayered. Okay. Let's... Um, the, um, the language over here of karar avatz karyeu chalavimi kimenu, interesting. There are similar kinds of languages that you find in Shirat Dvorah. When Dvorah describes how Yael brought Sisra down, there are a lot of similar kinds of language that's used. Chazal, interestingly, um, because of all the crouching and lying, um, lying as in lying down um, symbolism, interpreted in, in a sexual kind of way. And uh, it could be that there is a veiled reference to Yehuda's, um, Yehuda's tryst over here with Tamar as well. But as a result of the fact that Yehuda rose and raised himself, Lo yasur shevet mi Yehuda, you will never again lose your staff. You lost it once before. You lost it to Tamar. But you will never again lose your staff. The shevet of leadership will never again be taken from you. And again, another sexual kind of reference to Bain Raglav um, between, his, between his feet. Ad kiavo shilo. Now, this phrase, Ad kiavo shilo, um, served as a, as a flashpoint for Jewish Christian debate for about a thousand years. Because until Shiloh comes, so the Christians read it, so that Yehuda has the leadership until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh they understood as a reference to Jesus, so that Yaakov is saying that you have the leadership until Jesus is born. But I think in our story over here, it's very simple. Shiloh is a play on the name of Shelah. Once again, Yaakov referencing back, until you allow Shelah to, to come to his place, Right? Nothing good is going to happen. Now that, that we, we've been restored, the staff will never be taken from you. Uh, moving on to the, to the next Pasuk, um, the end of Pasuk Yudalef. Kibes bayayin uvedam anavim suto. He washed his clothes in the blood of wine. Now, Chazal interpret this in very, very beautiful kinds of ways. That in Yehuda's territory, there are going to be lots of vineyards, and so much so he can wash his clothes in wine. But the language that's used over here, talking about the blood of wine washing a cloak, right? Once again, a reference to the sale of Yosef, the dipping of, uh, dipping of, of the ketonet in, in blood. Chachlili so Yaakov in his brachati to Yehuda basically looks and says, Yehuda, you sank about as low as anybody could have sunk. But despite that, or maybe because of it, you picked yourself up to a place that nobody is your parallel. And because of that, you have um, the leadership of this clan. That shevet will never again be taken from you. Yaakov looks at Yehuda and says that your transformation has transformed all of us, not just yourself. And you are the leader of this clan.
That's the story of Yehuda um, here in Sefer Breshit. Let's jump some 14 generations, uh, maybe a little bit less than 14, um, to, um, to David. The story of David and Bathsheba. Um, the story of David and Bathsheba is, uh, is, is well known. Um, he falls into a terrible irresponsibility a woman who is covenantly bound to another man. Sounds very much like Yehuda. Like, like, like Yehuda. Um, upon discovery of the pregnancy, decides to cover it up, including allowing innocence to, um, innocence to die. Um, David is busy taking care of his own personal uh, sexual desires while his nation is out at war, just like Yehuda's family is in terrible distress while he's busy building him himself. Um, there's quite a bit that's, uh, that sort of ties those, uh, those two stories together. Um, both of them conduct their, uh, many of their affairs through proxies. Um, and proxies, by the way, that, that threaten to expose them. When Yehuda sends, uh, sorry, when, when David sends messengers to find Babacheva, you read this story. Um, he sends multiple messengers. He first he sees her. He sends some of his men to find out who is she. He gets a full report on who she is. Later on, there are messengers that go back and forth between David and Bathsheba. Um, every time you send messengers, you're compromising what's happening. Later on, he sends messengers to the field. Right? He sends Uriahiti out to the field with a message. Um, Yoav ben Suya sends a message back to David. There are lots of people running around with messages, right? So there, there's sort of something very strange about um, um, about that. And um, both Yehuda and David um, seem to have uh, really messed up sense of priorities. Yehuda is not prepared to take responsibility for anything except for his financial matters, and David is apparently more concerned with the fact that Bathsheba has just gone to the mikvah than with the fact that she's a married woman. Oh, okay. Now it's okay. Right? <laughs> like, what, what happened there? Um, of course, like with every cover-up, um, you know, every attempt at covering up means you now have to do another cover-up to cover up your tracks. And you just keep digging yourself deeper and deeper. But there's something else really strange about both of these stories. Um, which in the, in the story of David leaves me very, very troubled. In both of the stories, there's an illicit union. The child that's born out of an illicit union turns out to be chosen by God. So the, the, the child born from that one night stand that David had with Bathsheba dies, but later on, David takes Bathsheba as, as a wife, something that in Chazal is forbidden. Okay. I, obviously, David did not know that Chazal. But, <laughs> but the next child that's born is called Shlomo. And God said, calls him Yedidya, the friend of God. There's something here that doesn't make sense. So as much as the stories are similar, the story of David leaves us with, with really, really difficult questions. Um, the story of David and Bathsheba leaves us with even more difficult
difficult questions because Natan um, Hanavi, the prophet, comes to David and tries to let him know in sort of subtle, gentle kinds of ways that he did something wrong. So he does something that's actually very, very um, popular in, in Shmuel Beit, and that is he uses a parable. Now listen to the parable. Okay? Uh, we, we remember the story. David takes a married woman. She gets pregnant. He tries covering it up by having her husband go to sleep with her. He refuses. And we'll see some of the language there also, something very interesting. He refuses repeatedly. Finally, David has no choice but to send him back to the front, concoct a scheme whereby they're going to charge the wall around the the siege city, um, and then the entire army is going to pull back and leave this one guy to die. And what happens in the story is actually worse because not only does he get killed, but they don't pull back in time and a lot of his soldiers get killed as well. So there are lots of innocent people that end up being killed because of this. So we have adultery, we have murder, we have abuse of power, we have, I, I mean, the, the list of the kinds of sins that, and serious kinds of sins that we have over here is, is, is extraordinary. What's the mashal, the parable that Natan gives to David? You know, once, and he doesn't tell it as a mashal, he says, you know, a case came to the royal court, and I want you to decide about this case. Um, There was a very, very rich man who lived next to a very, very poor man. The rich man had a guest who came to him. Um, The poor man had only one little sheep, his beloved little sheep, and it was so sweet. They used to even sleep in the same bed together. And the rich man had, like, endless, endless cattle and sheep. And uh, he, w- he really wanted to feed his guests nicely, so he stole the poor man's sheep to feed his guest. And David is outraged. He says, kill him! <laughs> Wait a minute. The, nothing about this story makes sense. The mashal is really pathetic. You're talking about murder and adultery. And the, and the case that you're bringing before him is a case about stealing a sheep. Uh, there, there's something here. Uh, uh, I'm sure that a guy with prophetic skills could have done a lot better. Now, Truth is, for many readers of the story, many readers of the story, especially since we know the story already, we realize that, that um, not only is the mashal pathetic, but it's also really transparent. Because it's talking about a sheep sharing the guy's bed. So it's not, we're not talking just about a sheep. And this isn't Iowa. Okay? This is... Uh, I mean, there, there, there's, there, there's something. There's um, a veiled reference uh, going on over here. Um, so, right from the start, the, God's response to Natan, um, the Navi, is, is strange. Truth is, God's response is strange even earlier, because it says that God was upset. The end of, of, of this in, in Shmuel Beit, um, chapter 11, um, the very, very end says, You don't have this on your sheets yet, but we very 
Very soon we'll see. Um, what David did was very bad in God's eyes. Okay. I would have expected the Navi to have written that um, after David sleeps with Bathsheba. I would have expected the Navi to have written that after he tries covering it up by sending Uriah to sleep with his wife. I would have expected the Navi to have been upset after he sends the message to Yoav ben Suriah, the general in the field, to have Uriah killed. Or maybe even after Uriah died. Nothing doing. After the whole story is over, Uriah is dead, and, and, uh, and Bathsheba mourns for him. After she mourns for him, David takes her as a wife. And after that, after that, God is upset. On page two, on the second sheet that you have, if you don't have a Tanakh in front of you, you can just look on page two. I, I did a, uh, a summary. I really, and a summary is a terrible thing to do. We have over here a, a, um, an edited version right at the top of the page. Of all the things that, that David did in, in the process of trying to covering it up, and at the very end, verse 26 and 27, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she lamented over her husband. After the period of mourning was over, David sent and, brought, and, and had her brought into his palace. Again, he sent. He's always using messengers. Um, she became his wife and bore him a son. Just a second. Wow. And somehow or another... Oh. Wow, in the English it got cut off over here. This is um, on the second page, the top passage, the end of the top passage. Page number two. The end of the top passage. Uh, and wow, the, the last line in the English got cut off. In the Hebrew, you see it right there, the last line, It's a funny place to tell me that God is upset with David's actions. In fact, in the ancient world, and in Tanakh, um, we know that if a man rapes a woman, or seduces a woman, he's supposed to marry her. It's called the honorable thing to do. And when he marries her, he must, he must take her and keep her, and he's never permitted to divorce her unless she demands it. Um, marrying her is the only honorable thing that David did in this entire story. And it's at that point that the Navi decides to tell us that what he did was bad in God's eyes. We have an entire chapter of 27 psukim that describe the worst possible sins you could imagine. And it's only after David does something honorable that it says, David Hashem. Okay. The, the whole, everything about this is strange. God's timing of when he gets upset, the really pathetic kind of, of, of mashal that Natan provides him with, and God's response at the end. The child that's eventually born from David and Bathsheba is Shlomo HaMelech. How, how does such a thing happen? Okay. 
what I'd like to do is, is take a, a little bit of a closer look um, at, uh, at some of these responses. If you take a look at the second half of page two. The second half of page two is Natan's interpretation of the mashal that he gave to David after David said that the, that the rich man who stole the poor man's sheep has to die. Vayomer Natan al David ish, you are the man. Ko amar Hashem Yisrael, so says God, anuchin meshachticha lemelech al Yisrael, vanuchhi tzachticha miyad Shaul, I am the one who anointed you as king, I am the one who saved you from Shaul. I gave you your, your master, meaning Shaul's house. I also gave, gave you um, Shaul's women. And I also gave you the whole house of Israel and Yehuda. And if that's not enough, I would have given you much more. I mean, I gave you a lot. If that wasn't enough for you, you should have just asked me, I would have given you more. So why did you do something that was despicable in my eyes? You had Uriah killed. And you took his wife for you as a wife. And you had him killed by, by Ammonites. And even there, there's something strange, because there's something missing. Right there in Pasuk Tet, there's something missing. God starts the story over here with the arranging for the death of Uriah. What happened to taking Bathsheba on that first night? Why does God say nothing about taking another man's wife. He does talk about marrying her after Uriah is dead. But he says nothing about the initial taking of Bathsheba. There's something very strange going on over here. Vyata now, last pasuk, pasuk 10, Lo tasur chermi beitcha adulam, sword will not leave your house. Ekev ki vizitani, because you have spurned me, the way they translate it here. Because you married Uriah Hachiti's wife. And once again, uh, the problem over here is that he married Uriah Hachiti's wife or that he slept with a married woman. What becomes clear, and right now, uh, I, 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 I don't think we have time to go into why this is the case, but what becomes clear is that somehow or another, neither God nor Natan Hanavi are particularly concerned over the fact that David slept with a married woman. Chazal have lots of ways of taking care of the problems. And I'm sure that David had a legal team that was as good as Chazal and he would have gotten them off. Okay? For whatever reason... For whatever reason, the Navi is not concerned about the fact that David took a married woman. Okay. We can discuss a different time why maybe 
maybe. Why the Navi is not concerned with that? Can you give a strong implication? Because you raised a, a serious question, and you're not regular class. Uh, 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 I'll, I'll regalachat. Okay? Thank you. Uria is not Jewish. He's a Chitite. Okay? There's no legal marriage there. Okay? Technical, right? A legal team is going to argue that one in court and they may very well get off with it. Okay? There are lots of kings. Kings take license with lots of things. And if you were to take a look at what Shmuel says when they first come to him and he asks for a king, one of the things he says, I'll take your daughters. So we know that kings take license. And there are all sorts of circumstances under which kings take license. And, you know, David has a legal team and they will take each one of these things and he'll have five legal teams and each one of them is going to come up with a different way of defending, of defending it. For whatever reason, though, the Navi is not interested in those questions. The Navi is interested in something else completely. Now, what is it the Navi is interested in? I think I need just a little bit of background. And a little bit of background, let's just jump to the first, the first sheet that I gave you. first sheet that I gave you is an edited version of chapter 7 in Shmuel Beit. Chapter 7 in Shmuel Beit is what I call the great love story between God and David HaMelech. And this great love story has a little bit of a background to it. The background is very simple. When you take a look at the life of Shaul, you will discover that almost everything Shaul does, he does of his own initiative or because Shaul has some kind of connection with sorcery. Shaul believes in in the power of Karbanot, not because Karbanot is something that God tells us to do, but because Karbanot have power and we can use them. So that when Shmuel tells Shaul, wait for me, The prophet gave, gave an instruction to wait. Shaul decides to go and do the karbanot by himself and then go to battle. Right? And after, later on, he comes back from battle. What is Shaul interested in? Taking the sheep from Amalek and bringing them as karbanot. What does Shmuel say to him? Kikhatat kesem meri. The sin of kesem the sin of sorcery is rebellion against God. Ki hatat kesem meri. And before Shaul's final battle, when he's all nervous because Shmuel has already died, what does he do? He once again turns to a sorcerer to raise Shmuel from the dead so he can consult. Shmuel is a sorcerer who believes in magic, who believes that, that magical kinds of things like sacrifices or or invoking different kinds of powers can save him. That's not called belief in God. That's called belief in sorcery. When you take a look at David, and I can give you a a half a dozen examples here, every time David goes to battle, he turns to God. He carries with him a Kohen. The first thing he does, when he's running away from Shaul, he consults with the Kohen. Every time he goes out to the battle, he consults with the Urim Vitumim. All... Over and over and over again, what you find is David is consulting always with God, with the Navi, with the Kohen, over and over again. 
That's the background leading us up over here to chapter 7 in Shmuel Beit. What do we have? It's an extraordinary story. It's a beautiful love story. David says, it's time to build a Beit HaMikdash. I'm finished with my enemies. As David sat in his palace, and now he has, he has rest, respite from his enemies. So David HaMelech turns to Natan HaNavi and says, I'm sitting here in a beautiful palace made of cedars. The Aron sits there in a tent. Natan turns to him and says, God is with you. Whatever you want to do, go ahead and do. That night, Natan has a dream. And God comes to Natan in the dream and tells him, I don't want David to build me a house. And the language over here, I want you to tell David the following. You think you're going to build me a house? I've never had a house before. I don't need a house now. The business, by the way, it's about David having blood on his hands. You will not find coming from God's mouth in Tanakh. You will not find that coming from God's mouth in Tanakh. There are six times that this story is told in Tanakh. One of those stories is the version that David tells Shlomo before he dies in Derei Hayamim. And there is the first and the only time that you hear this, that business about the blood on the hands. And in the other five places, there's absolutely no reference to it. So we, the only place we ever hear it is in David's version that he tells Shlomo on his deathbed. But here we have the source. And it's not here anywhere in the source. Continue on. I jumped a couple of psukim just to be able to fit all this on one page. Um, the end of verse 11, the Gilecha Hashem, so this is as Natan is, is now re- retelling his, his Nevuat to David, God says, God's going to make a house for you. When you finally fill your days and die, then uh, your son will take over. He'll build the house. And I will establish his, his chair forever. Um, if you were to continue reading here, you will discover that there's a word that keeps coming up over and over again. I counted it in this chapter 12 times. The word bayit. David wants to build a house for God. What does God say? You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And the word house over here is used both ways. Both in terms of what David wants to do for God and what God says, I am going to do for you. Okay? If you jump down, for example, to verse 16. Your house and your throne 
will be true to me forever. Again, your house, David. Continue, verse 18. Now David responds. He says, Who am I and who is my house? Verse 25. That which you've promised about your servant and his house, please fulfill that. Continues in 26 again. Over and over and over again. This is a story. It's an incredible story. David says, God, I am filled with love for you and I want to build you a house. And God says, no, no. No, no. I'm going to build you a house instead. Unbelievable. So after, after the background of David on the run for so many years and finally establishing himself of David turning to God at every step along the way and God's taking care of him at every step along the way. Finally, David says, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, 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 no. It's my turn to build you a house. The next Perak, the, the very next chapter, which you do not have, but you can look this up very easily. The very next chapter, David goes to war, takes the spoils of that war, goes to a series of battles, takes the spoils of all those battles and dedicates them to the Beit HaMikdash that his son will build. So once God said, I'm going to build you a house, David says, okay, I'm going to make it possible for my son to build a house. I'm going to gather all the spoils. So the love story continues. Right? It's, uh, everything from the time that David starts Right? The first time David appears on the scene, Goliath is standing there and Goliath is making fun of the Jewish people. And David says, I am not going to allow you to insult God's people. I'm not going to allow you to insult God and his people. David does what he does for love for God. Over and over and over again, Perek Zion is the climax of that. It's the love song between God and David. And here we are, in the echoes of this love song. This is chapter 7. Chapter 8, David goes to war, goes to battle, and tries gathering, gathering stuff to build. Chapter 11, David takes Bathsheba. There's very little time that's passed between chapter 8 and chapter 11. In fact, the great irony that ties these two chapters together what does Uriah Hiti say to David when David wants him to go and sleep with his wife? Uriah says, our men are sitting out there in the field in tents and you want me to go to my house? And the echoes of Perek Zion keep coming back. It becomes especially poignant when we, we, um, the, the opening line of the story of David and Bathsheba. You don't have this on, on your sheets. But I'll just read it to you. David is sitting in his palace. His men are out there in the fields. That brings back echoes of David is sitting in his palace and the Aron is sitting in a tent. When Uriah says to David, our men are sitting in tents, how can I go to my house? It's almost like saying, and Chazal read it this way, how can you be in your house? Right? Echoes of that great love story between God and David, and something happened. Something happened since then, and David is sitting in his house, and 
The story of David and Bathsheba happens, and now let's turn once again to God's response and Natan's response. Those strange responses. For whatever reason, and again, we can only guess as to what those reasons might be, God's not interested in the fact that he's involved in murder and adultery. What is God interested in? The fact that he takes Bathsheba as a wife. Not the fact that he sleeps with her when she's a married woman, but the fact that he takes Bathsheba as a wife. And the fact that he did something that was, that was befitting of Paro. If you remember back to the story of Brishit, Avram comes down to Paro with Sarah, and Avram is afraid. They're going, hmm? Yeah, right? Avram is afraid they're going to they're kill him in order to take Sarah. Isn't that what David just did? He committed an act that was worthy of Paro. What is the first time, the very first time that God says he's upset? The very first time. It was in that line, it was on the second page, the end of the first passage, after David marries Bathsheba. Go on to the second passage on page 2. And what is the content of what Natananavi says? And let's go over this again. Let's go over this again. At the bottom of, of page 2. Vayomer Natanal David, Ata Ish, you're the man, referring back to the parable. Koamar Hashem Elokei Yisrael, Anochim Ishachticha Lemelech Yisrael. I appointed you, I anointed you as king. We've had this relationship. That buy it again. I gave you your master's house. I gave you his wives or his women. The house of Israel. And if that wasn't enough for you, What's God essentially saying? I have a relationship with you. You did for me, I do for you. All you have to do is ask. And when you ask, I'll find a way to make it happen. Don't worry. And there are lots of women that have come into David's wife and in David's life, and all of them, through absolutely legitimate means, including women that had previously been, been, been married, right? What does God say? Madua in verse nine. Madua bazita edvar Hashem. Why did you spurn or did you um, 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 despise um, the word of God? Lasot et isha. You killed him in order to take her. Don't you think I could have arranged something different? If you really wanted Bathsheba, David, your throne rests on one principle. That one principle is the fact that you and I have a special bond. That's what got you the throne. That's what got you everything that you have up until this point. By going and doing this now on your own, you have violated the very fundamental tenets of the relationship that we've established up until this point. If you want to go it alone, let's, let's see what your life is going to be like. Like every other king. 
There's intrigue, there's murder, there's, there's internal family kind of stuff, right? I mean, we don't hear much about the royal family in England today, but you don't have to go far to know what happens in royal families. You want to go it alone? Great, go it alone. There will be sores in your house, there will be fa- one member of the family raping another member of the family, and, and, uh, and vengeance on that, rebellions against you. The only reason why you haven't had problems is because you have walked together with me up until this point. But if you insist on going it alone from now on, your royal family is going to look just like every other royal family. Swords, fights, internal battling. The same thing, by the way, happens to David in the very last chapter in Sefer Shemuel. David decides he's going to count the people. There's absolutely nothing wrong with counting the people. There's no halachic injunction against counting the people. You know what the problem is? The problem is counting the people when there's absolutely no need basically serves no function other than saying I'm the king and these are my people. These are my subjects. As opposed to saying I have a relationship with God and God and I, we make things work. So what's God's response to him? Well, there's going to be some kind of disaster that usually befalls a kingdom. Wars happen. They haven't happened to you. But wars happen. You You want to go it alone? You'll have a war. Famine? You haven't had a famine in a while. Right? But famines are natural in Eretz Yisrael. We have a four-year drought right now. Famines are natural. Why do you think you haven't had a famine in 37 years? So, David, which natural thing were were you asking for? Enemies? Wars? Famine? You choose. God, God gives them the choice. Unbelievable. What kind of business is God gives you the choice of? No, God. That's basically what God is telling him. It's the same message that we have here. You violated the relationship. David spends the next, most of the rest of Sefer Shmuel, trying to restore that relationship. And in fact, at one point. When Avshalom decides to take the throne, David runs away. He doesn't want to fight. After Avshalom dies, so they all say, David, come back, come back. And David says, I need to know if God wants me back or not. I don't care that I just won a popularity contest. I don't care that, I, that Avshalom was just killed and that the rebellion is over. David says explicitly, if God wants me back, then I will take the throne. If God doesn't want me back, I'm not going to take the throne. If you take a look at the last page, I know I'm out of time now, but we need just mamash five minutes. The last page is a parak in Tehillim. This parak in Tehillim, the way it's written in front of us, is David's response to the story of Bathsheba, in which he takes responsibility for his sin. So, this is the psalm that David wrote when Natan came to him because of the incident with Bathsheba. Oh, please God, have mercy upon me as befits your faithfulness. Much compassion. Please cleanse me from my sin. Please purify me. 
I know my sin is in front of me all the time. Those who say David didn't sin obviously did not read this chapter. But now read Pasuk 6. To you alone, God, have I sinned. And that which is bad in your eyes I have done. What? To you alone, God, I have sinned? What's bad in you? What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about all the other men that were killed along with Uriah Hachiti? What about the violation of, of his authority, the violation of the throne, the violation of, of justice, which is the foundation of any kingdom? How could David say such a thing? It's clear that Natan Navi and God and David himself understand that the fundamental sin that he's guilty of is a violation of the relationship with God. All the other things can be explained. How? He's got a legal team. They'll take care of it. But, but the violation of that relationship with God, that's devastating. Later on, Pasuk 12, they've written beautiful songs about this. Leif tahor barali Elohim v'ruach nachon chadesh b'kirbi. Please, God, fashion for me a pure heart. Al tashlicheni milafanecha. Don't throw me out from being in front of you. V'ruach kochecha al tikach many, and don't take your spirit from me. That means that what David was sensing after the story with Bathsheba was that he is now all alone. David's sin was a breach in the relationship with God. And I'm, I'm just watching the clock here and I'm, I'm already late. Um, and the only way to repair that sin is to find a way to repair that relationship with God. And that's what David spends the next ten chapters in Sefer Shmuel doing. Trying to bring God back into his life. We have two models and the two models that we have are so profoundly different. And they don't really bear much resemblance to, um, to many classical notions of sin. Many classical notions of sin is there are 613 mitzvot and I either violated or didn't do the following number, and I have a list and my checklist, and I go through them, and you can buy the pamphlet that have the expanded checklist, so each one, of the, each one of those 44 is really five more, so now you have, uh, you know, instead of 44, you now have 110, sort of like the Makot in Mitzrayim that we do at the Seder night, right? And my sins are expanding and just blossoming all over the place. I'll hate, I, I just, that, and the litany just keeps... That's what usually, and, and we have a list. Well, we, we know what the sins are. The two models that, that, we have, that I brought to you today are profoundly different. The model of Yehuda is not a question of sinning to other people. The model of Yehuda 
is about identifying a fundamental character flaw within himself and working to transform that. And in the process of transforming that, to transform all those around him. And that's the model of Teshuvah presented to us by, um, by Yehuda. The model presented to us by David is also not a sin about, a, not a model of a litany of sins. And it's not about murder, it's not about adultery, for whatever the reasons may be. It's not about abuse of power, it's not about any of those things. It's about making God distant from us in our lives. And David spends the next 10 years, the next 10 chapters, trying to repair that. Trying somehow or another to make God in ever presence so that David can say, I always want to be lefanecha. I always want to be in your face. I always want to sense that I am in your presence. I would just hope that... um, Hope and pray that these two models can serve as some kind of inspiration for all of us as, uh, as we prepare ourselves during these Aseret Yemei Tshuvah.